closed in a series looking at the letter of Philippians, which we tied, entitled Joy in the Journey. And today we're going to begin looking at the introductory verses of Philippians chapter 4. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Philippians 4, 1 to 7. And I pray that you would have open hearts and minds. This is God's Word for us today, starting with verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, a true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this is God's word. You can take your seats. Well, in sort of customary fashion of what the Apostle Paul likes to do, he brings us in chapter 3 to this wonderful and lofty theology that stretches the bounds of our thinking and minds. But then he says this heavenly theology is practical in the everyday lives that you live in. And so he takes this heavenly, worldly identity that we have in Jesus, these blessings, this suffering, this cosmic truth and reality that Jesus has died for your sins, and rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, he still watches over you. And he says, if you embrace this, you can have real joy. You can have real power. You can have real perspectives and wisdom on life. And then he brings it down into everyday, nitty-gritty, mundane, routine life and relationships. And that's what chapter 4 is really about. He's trying to apply the gospel. And essentially, he's saying, I want you to have a unity and peace a unity and peace. And that's what I want to dialogue with you here today, that we could discuss that. And he, has, he wants to encourage us to have a peace that's outward and external through relationships and through life and community. And then he encourages us and, say, and says, I want you to also have internal peace to deal with all the internal stress and anxiety that you may be going through. And that's just the two points that we'll consider here today. We're going to look at how do we cultivate external peace relationally and in life and community and your family and friends. And then secondly, and perhaps arguably the harder piece to have is how do you deal with the anxiety and stress internally in your heart? Because there's chaos outside of you, relational breakdown surrounding you. But if we're honest, you're all, you also experience a chaos within you. There's a, a spiritual breakdown in your heart and your life inside of you. And so let's look at this together. Those are the two perspectives that we can consider. Two things that Paul, I think, at least addresses in our verses. And first, we want to look at outward relational peace. How do we have external peace? And that's centered on verses 2 to 3, because what Paul in this chapter is centered on in this relational peace, this external peace, is that he wants to talk about the Christian mind, your thinking, your perspective on life. How do you view things in this world? And he's basically saying, what we think and believe will dictate strongly how we relate 
and live with one another. And the reason I know that is because back in chapter 2, verse 5, he stressed to the church, have the same mind of Jesus, almost like a clothing metaphor saying, put on the mind of Christ. And if you think like Jesus and feel like Jesus, and then in verse 2 of our passage, he uses that same exact word for thinking in mind. He says, it's translated agree, but he says to two women, agree with one another in the Lord. And then in verse 10, the same word there is again, but it's translated, have this concern. And even in verse 8 of our passage, uh, the passage after the one I read, it's a similar word where Paul says, think about these things. So that word for thinking, which began back in chapter 2, is now peppered throughout, and he's saying, think like this. Because if you could think like Jesus, then you could begin to have relational, external peace, a coherence of your life and relationships. And that's what Paul's trying to get at, the unity of the church. He's emphasizing your attitude, the way that you, your body language, the way that, the tone of your voice. And he wants you to all agree because that's really a reflection of the gospel of Jesus uh, for the world out there. And so in verses two to three, Paul encourages two women, Yodia and Syntyche, to think to agree and for the sake of the fellowship. I mean, that's basically verse 2. Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat, I entreat Syntyche. I, I'm pleading with you. You know, he's begging them, these two women, to agree in the Lord. And what's really challenging about this is a couple of things. I don't know about you, but if you ever thought, I wish my name was in the Bible for eternity, you got to be careful for what you wish for because if your name was listed as someone who just has a falling out in an argument with somebody else in church, and that's listed literally there for eternity, I don't know if that's what you really want. But Paul names these women. He singles them out. He actually writes them in the Bible, and he says to two, these two women, and by, by the way, if you notice this, he's not talking about non-Christians. He's not talking about heretics. He's talking about beloved sisters who are leaders in the church, most likely. That's why he says these names are written in the book of life. Now imagine that. He listed them in this Bible. That means whatever disagreement they had was so bad that he had to publicly acknowledge that. Now a couple of things about this disagreement before we talk about how to have external peace. One, all the commentators will say that we're not surely, really sure what these two women were disagreeing about. We can be confident that's probably not heresy because they're in the book of life. So it's not catastrophic, heretical teaching. It's not somebody coming in here with anti-gospel sentiments or sort of Gnostic tendencies to theology. It's not anything like that. And it's probably not anything that we think about with drastic relational difficulty. They're not murdering anyone. It's not adultery. They're not stealing things from each other. At least that's the best case. That's why it's so applicable. Because a lot of difficulty that you have in this church are probably not to the degree of adultery. It's probably not because you're getting into a fight and you're punching one another in the face. It's probably not because you're stealing each other's cars or vandalizing each other's houses. It's probably just everyday relationships that just have a difference of opinion. She invited her to my party, but didn't invite me. I felt offended by the way she sort of talk to me. I disagree with the way that he or she is parenting. Why does she have to talk like that? Why does she dress like that? And by the way, it is two sisters, but it's not just trying to say two sisters. It's really humanity that has a problem. So between guy and guy, girl and girl, it's all the same thing. The context here is about two women. It's everyday matters that you and I can relate to. Now, friends, just imagine 
If I named publicly on this pulpit specific people who have a falling out with each other, I don't know if I would last the next hour and may get fired from my job. But that's what Paul does. And believe me, as much as I gently and honestly say this, I could probably name six people that sort of fit into this. And imagine if I name these six men and women that I think have a relational difficulty in church, and I say, okay, guys, here you are, here are the names, pray for them. Now, how would you respond to that? You, you probably would be freaking out. I mean, maybe I should test it out and just name a couple, a couple of names. Actually, I'm not, but I'm trying to look in the faces and see who are nervous, and they're like, oh, there's another falling out. And so, but that, that's just how Paul is so, he, it's so important because it's so applicable because it's just everyday relationships. It's a brokenness of life. It's a falling out. It's a misunderstanding. It's a miscommunication. She said this to me, but they don't communicate and they don't talk. And Paul is saying it got so bad that he had to publicly acknowledge this because what's at stake is actually the unity of the church. That's a challenge. And Paul basically says, I encourage you to agree, have the same mind, have the same thinking. Think in the Lord, because what Paul says in his solution is not just to agree on the same thing, which is kind of interesting. He doesn't say think exactly the same way, but in verse 2, he says, agree in the Lord. And what he's saying there is basically, in the Lord is your union with Jesus, saying, think like Jesus, feel like Jesus, be other-centered like Jesus, talk like Jesus, have the mind of Jesus. Gentle, patience, listen first, talk second, understand where they come from, be ready to confess your sin, acknowledge your blind spots. And that's the only way that you can reconcile. And it must have been so bad that he says, okay, get Clement, and maybe he can kind of mediate this issue. But that's his solution to remind them of all the wonderful truths that he already talked about in chapter 3. Have the mind of Christ. And he's saying, Yodia, Syntyche, remember that you have the mind of Jesus. He had equality, something he didn't consider to be grasped. He came into this world and took on human flesh, and he died for you and me. Now think with that humility. Think with that heart. Think with that gentleness and other-centeredness. And he says, please agree in the Lord. In the power of Jesus, you have the gospel power to do this as hard as it is because you're a new person. You have a new heart. You could be gentle. You could think about someone before yourself. It's possible because you can agree in the Lord. Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson once said this, we can never shake hands with a fellow Christian after a disagreement and say, I told you so. Instead, we must always say, the Lord has told both of us so. And as hard as that may sound, you have the ability to do that in this church. So friends, I just want you to think, you know, is there someone that you have this sort of tension, sort of rivalry, sort of long-standing history to say, I have this beef with somebody else, but maybe I need to figure out slowly, how can I agree in the Lord with him or her? And that's how the church and that's how the people should deal with their personal differences. That's what Paul's trying to say, broadly and simply, agree in the Lord. It applies to all of us. We have all these kinds of issues myself included. As a pastor, there's all kinds of issues I could have with other pastors, other churches, other brothers at the presbytery, other members, other elders, other deacons, other ministry directors. Now, no one's immune to this. I'm just as guilty of Yodia and Syntyche as anyone else, and it's just as hard for me to agree in the Lord because in my pride, I'm always thinking, I know better. I know more Bible. I think about the church more than other people, but that's absolutely the wrong way to approach this. 
And so this is even a gentle encouragement for someone like me. I entreat you, all of us, New Life Press, to agree in the Lord because you have the mind of Jesus. And this leads us to our second point. Not only is there external peace, but he wants us to agree, you and I, with ourselves internally, with our anxiety, an internal heart peace. Let me set up the context a little bit because the passage is so rich, but we can't go into every verse. Otherwise, we'd be here for the next two hours. I'm going to focus on stress and anxiety. But to set up how Paul talks about stress and anxiety, I want to talk about really the heartbeat of this passage, which is talking about rejoicing. Now, Paul in verses 4 to 7, he transitions. Verse 2 to 3, external unity. Verses 4 to 7, internal heart, peace, transcendent tranquility. And Paul transitions here in that way. In verses 4 to 7, he basically has three really big catch words. In verse 4, he says, rejoice. In verse 6, he says, don't be anxious. And then in verse 7, have some peace. Rejoice, anxiety, peace. Those are relational words. Those are communal words. But here's what I want to focus on. They're relational experiential words, rejoice, anxiety, and peace. Verse 4, when it talks about rejoicing, is actually really strong, perhaps the strongest. He says there, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He's repeating, he says, rejoice, let me say it again. Rejoice. It's a strong word. Be joyful. Full of joy and thanksgiving. Now, even the, in the English, rejoice is actually a strong word because it's not just joy. It's saying rejoice. Do it again. Repeat. Put it on playback. And that's a pattern of our lives. It's a strong emotion that Paul actually commands. He says, you got to feel like this. Rejoice always in this life and pattern that follows our Lord and Savior Jesus. That's what he says. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And in the same way that he says to Yodi and Syntyche, how are you going to agree in the Lord? To you and me, how are you going to rejoice when the circumstances of our lives are really difficult? Maybe the environment of our lives are really hard. Our marriages are difficult, school is difficult, work is hard. How can you actually have a hint of rejoicing internally when your external life is actually really difficult and stressful? How do you get a taste? How do you get a hint? Well, in the same way that we have peace with one another, Paul says, agree in the Lord, and he says, rejoice in the Lord, in tasting heaven, in tasting Jesus, in talking about him, in receiving him. It doesn't mean that our suffering and our injustices and our pain externally go away, but it does give us a little bit of hope, a little bit of joy, a little bit of reason to continue, a little bit of taste to say, you know, there's something greater than the world that I see around me. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Even when life is difficult, even when it's stressful, even when it could be catastrophic. In the same way, Paul is saying, think about that. No, think about Jesus. Think about that. Can you be joyful internally, even though externally it's a really difficult life? And Paul says, think about that. Think about Jesus. You know, he secured everything for you. He's washed away your sins. He has all this hope and promises in the kingdom of God. It's not fully yours. You get a taste of it, but one day it'll be yours. You know, all the injustice that you see in this world, all the atrocities, the difficulties, yeah, it's painful. It's heart-wrenching. It's broken. But he says there is a promise that God gives you secured in Jesus and that you get a taste of it now. Think about that. Rejoice in the Lord. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. But then he continues, and this is where we're going to focus a lot of our time. He says not only rejoice internally, but he says, 
You know all that anxiety in your heart, all that stress? He says, I have an answer for this. I have an answer for you. For all you stress balls, all you people who just are very anxious, and that includes me too, he says, let's talk about this. Let's diagnose it. And I think I have a solution for you. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. So let's talk about anxiety. There's one thing that I can tell you without even knowing everyone personally is that I guarantee that no matter how old or how young, how rich and successful or how young in your career, every one of you knows what it feels like to be anxious, to be stressed. In a somewhat dated article in the Huffington Post, it said that on Amazon eBooks, it reported that the number one highlighted verse in the Bible was verses 6 and 7 here about anxiety. The number one verse highlighted in Amazon eBooks. And that may tell us something about our culture. If you just look, you know, New York Times bestseller, or you look at the books that are sold, there are so many books dealing with stress. How do you deal with stress? How do you deal with your anxiety? How do you think about this? You know, even if you think about just our natural human state, when babies are born and they come into this world, you know, when babies are born, how do they come into this world when they're born in the hospital? They don't come out all peaceful. They're not smiling and they're ready just to eat. They come out with ferocity. They come out with a passion. They come out how? Stressed. Because they're cold or they're hungry and they just had a warm, cozy environment in the mother's womb and now they're exposed to the entire world and that's a scary place to be. That tells us that on this side of glory, a natural human posture and position for you and me is that we're naturally stressed and anxious. It's part of the human predicament. We all suffer, suffer from anxiety. We all have anxious tendencies. We experience fear and anxiety and that's why Paul's words may speak to us more. He says, don't be anxious, don't be stressed, don't be fearful. That verb there literally means don't worry about possible danger, but don't be stressed and anxious. And he says, lift up everything in prayer. Now, before we talk about the prayer part, I want to talk about a little bit about anxiety. And I'm going to take most of these thoughts from a book that many of you are familiar with. It's written by a counselor, Ed Welch, and he wrote this book called Running Scared. And he gives you a very helpful diagnosis and perspective. What is really anxiety telling you about this world and yourself? Because if you didn't realize this, every emotion that you feel, anxiety, joy, anger, grieving, they express. It's, a, it's another way to communicate and interpret the way that you're living. So when you grieve something, it's communicating something that says, I'm just really sad. And I'm missing something that I just lost. And anxiety communicates in that same way. So let's talk about this. What is it trying to tell us here? Well, in Ed Welch's book, he'll use these terms, fear, anxiety, and stress, interchangeably. So, so will I. It's sort of synonyms. But the first thing that we learn about anxiety is that it does speak. It's communicating something. It's trying to share something. Now, stress and anxiety, fear, like many other heart issues, is a window into the spiritual condition of your life. You know, anxiety is a form of fear. It reveals to you, this is what it speaks. On one level, your anxiety will speak and show you what is really important in your life. Your anxiety is really close to something really important and potentially even idolatrous. He says there's a close connection between what we fear and what we think we need to live because 
It's not what we actually need, but it's what we think we need. And that's why he says your fears and anxieties are a stone's throw away for a potential idol because it reveals what you really think you need or what you really potentially idolize or what you really love is really important to you. No, so for example, if we have anxiety about comfort, so we get stressed out when our life is out of order, we may fear physical pain and discomfort. If we actually need approval and acceptance from others, which is a big one for myself and pastors, a fear of man, what is your greatest fear? Your fear is being fear of rejection, being criticized, being neglected, not seen. If we fear rejection, then we're going to be anxious and feel like we need love. If we feel like we need admiration for our physical attractiveness, then we're going to fear and be anxious about gaining weight. And all the times, whenever you fear something, you begin to be really controlling. You know, if you, if you fear actually not being able to pay the bills and having money for vacation and pay the mortgage, if you're anxious about that, you're going to be really controlling about your budget, and you're going to be really angry when somebody doesn't account for 10 cents on your general ledger or your checking book. That's how it's really sort of the two sides of the same coin. It's a stone's throw away for something that might be an idol, and then you tend to control that arena of your life because your anxiety speaks. So one thing is to say, you know, if you follow the path, what are you anxious about? You may get clarity on what your idols may be. Maybe. You'll always find out what's really important to you. You know, if you're anxious about your kids all the time, there's something there in your heart that your fear is speaking to. You know, if you're fearing your health and saying, oh my gosh, I gotta, I gotta eat well, everything's organic, and I gotta exercise, all really good things, but if it's too much and you're just anxious about your health, then there's a fear and anxiety there that kind of reveals something about your idolatry. The other thing about anxiety and worry is that in some ways, if you think about it, it's actually a form of prophecy. It's a, it's a prophetic voice. Anxiety is a prophecy of doom. You're a negative prophet because it's a predictor of the future, but your anxiety says the future is going to be bad. That's what anxiety says. You're always living in the future. Did you know that people who are always anxious, when you look at them, they're not really in conversation in the moment. People are really anxious. You can tell their mind is wandering somewhere else because mentally they're living in the future, wondering what the future will be, but they're essentially a prophet of doom because they're thinking about the future, but the future is always bad. You know, in other words, one person said it like this. All of us have wild imaginations as to what the future looks like. And so in some ways, you and I, we are all visionaries because we all have an imagination of what our future will look like. But anxiety-driven warriors are visionaries without any optimism. We are, if you're a warrior, if you're an anxious person, you are an absolute visionary saturated in pessimism and doom. It's a prophecy of doom. Warriors live in the future. They're constantly stressed, constantly worried, because there's no shortage of all different repercussions of what could happen 10 days from now, or a month, or a year. They say when anxiety is that deep and registers on the physical level, you're stressed out, you have an ulcer, they call that stress. Stress usually tells us there's too much to do in too little time or that we feel there's this burden that's beyond our control and capabilities. You know, even as a Christian, do you know what anxiety says about your doctrine of God? You know, your doctrine? It says, okay, God, you are all-powerful, you are all-loving, 
but you're not very wise. Does that make sense? That's what worriers and anxiety says about your doctrine of God. God, I believe that you're all-powerful. You created the world. I believe you're gracious. I believe you're loving. I just don't think you're going to get my life right. So I need to take control of this because I think I'm a little bit wiser about how to navigate the pathway of my life. That's what anxiety says. And when it registers on its physical level, they call that stress. If you want a picture of what actually anxiety is, well, a great one is actually in Luke chapter 10, verse 41. It's a famous story where Jesus comes to one of his like, closest families, Mary and Martha. Martha is really anxious, so she's cleaning the house, she's cooking, she complains about her sister Mary, who is at Jesus' feet. And in verse 41 of Luke chapter 10, it says, But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And you know that Greek word there, anxious? In the Greek, it literally means broken shattered. And that's a picture of anxiety because people are worriers. Mentally, you're broken. Your mind is shattered in a thousand pieces because you're thinking about a thousand different details. And that's why you're frantic. And that's why you're on edge. And you can always tell somebody who's really anxious because there's this frenetic energy about them. When you look at them, their mind is broken into a thousand pieces. That's what anxiety is. And so if it shows you your potential idols, if it's your mind that's shattered, if anxiety that comes down to the physical level is stress, if it tells you that your doctrine of God means that I believe God's all-powerful and all-loving, he's just not that wise because he's going to screw my life up, then what do you do with anxiety? How do you cope with this? Well, what most people do is that they either try to control it, as I've said, they go into overdrive and they're type A and they're nitpicky, or they probably just vent it. No, so they control it or they vent it. That's usually the most common ways. And then they vent it, they just lash out in anger. They release it. Or maybe they just press it. They have a squish, the stress ball, and they just like press it. They have to get it out. Or they go for a jog. Or they go for a riding on the bike. Or they have that chocolate cake that they never thought they would actually eat. And they just try to relieve it and to release it, to unleash it, to yell about it. And others of you, you try to control it. You actually essentially try to be God that you assume you're omnipotent, that you can see all things, control all things, and then it just drives you deeper into anxiety. Paul says this. He says, don't just let it out. Don't try to control it. You got to pray it. Don't suppress it. Don't unleash it. You got to pray it. Cast your burdens unto Jesus. He knows everything in that famous verse in the Gospels, which, by the way, when it says cast your burdens upon Jesus, it's not a toss. You know, as a major league baseball player, says throw it with confidence onto Jesus. Paul says in verse 6, pray it. Let's read that together. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The answer to your anxiety, as simple as it might sound, but if we look at it, it's really profound, is prayer. There's a strong contrast. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything... Pray about it. That word is what opposes prayer. It's a strong antagonistic word. You want to fight anxiety? It says, here's your tool. Don't be anxious about anything, but it's antagonistic against anxiety. Pray for everything. I'll show you why that works. Let me try to explain that. But this one guy's commentator, R. Rainey, has says this. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Simple as that. So let me ask you a question for those of you who live in the future, who are anxious, try to control, pretend you're God. 
how often do you pray about these things? Before I sort of diagnose why that works. If you're like, I never pray about it, then at least you can agree, even if you, even if you disagree with the Apostle Paul's not solution, at least you could say, well, I never tried it out. You know, you know, the difficult patients for you doctors out there, you give them their prescription, you give them their medication, you tell them what to do, but they never really do it. And it's like, well, of course you're never going to get better or healthier if you're not listening to the doctor's prescription. That's exactly the same thing. Give it a shot. You may disagree with this. In prayer, that's not going to do anything for me. Just try it. Just try it. Give it a chance. Now, Oswald Chambers has said this once. We tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. So Paul here is stressing a prayerful life. He's accenting pray everything to God because the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Because in a world that's scary, uncertain, the way that Paul is saying that you can really begin to address your anxiety through prayer is because you're talking to the Lord of the universe who is in control of your life. He may not give you every reason why your life is not going the way that you want, but he will give you the most important reason, which is, I'm here with you. And prayer will cultivate that, will accent that. Now, the easiest picture is that one of the greatest metaphors in the Bible is that you and I, no matter how old we are, we are children of God. Have you ever seen a little four-year-old lost, crying for mommy and daddy at Disneyland, the mall, outdoor place? You know, what is actually the comfort for that little child when they feel lost, they're stressed, and they're anxious? It's not as if you go to that four-year-old and you say, calm down. You know, here's the exit. Here's the map of the, the park. You know, you're safe here. You know, that's not going to do anything for the four-year-old. The only thing that will calm and give peace that surpasses all understanding for that little kid is to say, here's mom and dad. And mom and dad embraces and hugs the little kid, and all the tears are wiped away, and they feel at home. Why do they feel at home? It's not because they know geographically where they are in the park. It's because they know that they are in the most important place in the embrace of their loving father. This world that we live in, in the future that we're trying to navigate, we're like that little four-year-old. We don't know the landscape. Google Maps doesn't have a path for the future, and it's scary. We're uncertain. We're not sure if actually marriage will work out. We're not sure where our kids will be. We're not sure where work will be. We're not sure if we'll have a recession or we're going to have a soft landing in the economy. We're not sure about the finances of this world and the job market, everything that comes to before. We're not sure if we're going to be healthy. It's scary, and so the answer is not to over-control things. It's to just like that little kid to say, when you pray, it's a reminder that you're a child of God and all the promises that the Bible gives you in Jesus are yours. You can taste it. You can be reassured spiritually. That's why in the chaos of the life around you, you could have a piece of a Christian gospel-centered life within you. He's stressing prayer. Prayer is the answer to anxiety. See, one thing to note in the text is that we see the importance and emphasis of prayer because prayer is mentioned there three times in that one verse. Three synonyms for prayer. Group together, prayer, supplication, requests. A loose way to understand this verse would be to say, in everything by prayer and prayer with thanksgiving, let your prayers be known to God. 
that's how Paul is trying to say this. He's not saying get more degrees, make more money. No, certainly you could talk to wise people. There's a lot of things he could do, but at the core of it, he says, and everything by prayer, and prayer with thanksgiving, let your prayers be made known to God. Prayer is the answer to anxiety. F.F. Bruce, this commentator in the New Testament, the scholar says, to emphasize the importance in the Christian life of constancy and believing and expectant prayer, Paul uses three synonyms for prayer, a lifetime and a pattern of prayer. Friends, prayer is not just what the Apostle Paul says. It's not just what I'm trying to say, say here. You know, there's people from all walks of life that naturally say you got to be dependent on something. You know, different ethnicities, different people. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he once said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Another gentleman said, work as if you were to live a hundred years, pray as if you were to die tomorrow. That's Ben Franklin. This one other guy said, do not pray for an easy life. Pray for the strength to endure a difficult one. The prophet, his name is Bruce Lee. <laughs> everyone knows prayer. I'm not even sure if Bruce Lee is Christian, but everyone knows his sort of spirituality in order to connect the deal with their anxiety. Prayer is essential to the Christian life because it's not so much a task as much as a pattern, something that is innate to you like eating, sleeping, and drinking. It makes life work. So if you want external peace outside of you between the yodias and syntikis of your life, agree in the Lord. If you want peace within you, he's saying acknowledge what anxiety is and pray it. God is wiser than we are. You could trust him. He has sent his son Jesus to die for you. He secured all the promises for you. You get a taste of that. You have a fellowship with him. You can receive it. And the most beautiful thing is all this brokenness in the life in this world, there's someone that's also praying for you, and his name is Jesus. In the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, in verses 11 to 12, before Jesus goes up to heaven, he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to leave you, and I'm going to keep praying for you. Did you know that even now, even this moment as you sit in your chair, Jesus is our high priest, that theological truth that says he's praying for you now. He knows every hair on your head, every anxiety of your heart. He knows everything that you have in your aspirations and goals, and he says, I'm praying for you right now. The perfect Savior, our Lord, that's what Jesus does as our high priest. That's what he says in John 17, verse 11 and 12. He says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. I mean, God's presence, his protection, his power, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That prayer is something that Jesus still prays. He says, I still have you. I gave you the spirit. I'm never going to let you go. I'm never going to lose you. You're, always, you're never going to be lost. You're always going to be with me. Sure, you're never going to know every answer to all the complexities of your life, but Jesus says, I'm giving you the most important answer, that I'm always going to be with you. I'm never going to let you go. So Jesus does what you and I don't do too well sometimes. He lifts up the perfect prayer for your life. That's what we can bank on him and look to him, receive him, to celebrate him, to worship him, to talk to him, to ask him for forgiveness and ask him for help. And on that note, friends, let's turn to the Lord and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we received in your son. And thank you, Lord, so much that we have all the promises, yes and amen, in your son, Jesus Christ. 
and that you have, you see us where we are in our anxieties and our idolatries and our frailty, our uncertainty. And some of us in this church, Lord, we are so anxious. The world is so scary and it's so much bigger than what we can ever imagine. And so much about our lives are out of our control and that makes us anxious, God. But we pray, Lord, that we could bank and to live and to receive and to trust in the promises you give us that you are true, powerful, your promises are yes and amen. You have sent your son Jesus to not only tell us but to show us that you have secured us in an everlasting eternal relationship. And we thank you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.